To support our work at the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. I'm Martana. And I'm Izzy. And welcome to the Izzy Martana Picture Show. Hello, friends. This week, we are talking about movie adaptations. Later on in the program, Izzy has a wonderful conversation uh, with a writer, Kirsten Lopez, about a new book about movie adaptations. But to set it up, we thought first that Izzy and I should talk a little bit about our favorite adaptations and what we think makes a good book to film adaptation. So it's a very broad subject uh, because there are so many book adaptations. And I think people, you know, when you bring up this subject, they bring these popular, very big um, bestsellers like The Lord of the Rings or Dune, which is a recent very popular book adaptation. And those are books, frankly, I didn't read. I like the movies enough. But I haven't read some of these sort of like big blockbuster books. So the adaptations that work for me are smaller, um, smaller books, smaller movies, although some of them are Oscar winning. Um, what, what works for you in an adaptation or what kind of books are you looking for when you think of a good movie adaptation? Well, it was tough for me to answer that question when I was thinking about it because I knew we had to come into this episode knowing a couple of our favorite uh, book to film adaptations. And I was looking at my letterbox list of my 100 favorite films. And I realized so many of them are book adaptations or play adaptations, uh, but that I haven't actually read a lot of the books that <laughs> that they're based on. I'm much yeah. more of a nonfiction reader. So I wish that I could say I've read, you know, uh, what's a good example? I haven't read any... Um, Jane Austen books. I haven't read any Bronte or any of those things that are kind of ad- adapted over and over and over again that we see. I haven't read Little Women. Um, exactly. Or, yeah. I've, I've read, read Pride and Prejudice. Like it's the only one I read. So <laughs> yeah, I, think I read an abridged version of Little Women, but um, yeah, you know, so I tried to think about some of the films that have actually read uh, the book that they're based on. And I have a short list a three that I think are very good. Um, oh, right. First cool. being uh, the American David Fincher version of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons that I think that's very successful is because it captures the moodiness of the novel. Um, I think there's kind of a, the way that David Fincher films, it's so like slow and kind of cold um, and a little bit menacing. And that's kind of what the novel evokes for me. Um, and so I felt like that was a very successful adaptation in mm-hmm. the sense that it kind of feels as dark as the book is, even though, you know, who's going to buy someone that Daniel Craig looks like him is a <laughs> journalist, but that's fine. You do that yeah. all the time. Um, what about and... you? Is there a movie like that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think you coming up with The Girl is a Dragon Tattoo, I haven't read the book, so I can't say if it's a good adaptation or not, but I agree that David Fincher has kind of sort of made um, his mark adapting these sort of quote-unquote airport thrillers because also Gone Girl is a very good adaptation. And it's an adaptation that actually captures the novel really well. And it's a film I love. I'm not as in love with the book as I am, but I do like the film. Um, I went a little bit further back to the 90s, and an adaptation that I really love is The English Patient, which is the Anthony Minghella movie that won nine Oscars, and it was adapted from a novel by Michael Ondaatje. 
Um, the novel is very well loved and it won the Booker Prize and then it won the Booker of Bookers a couple of years ago where they made, they sort of chose of all the Booker Prize winning novels, what would be the one, number one, and it was the English version. And it is a book that I really love. Um, as an as an immigrant, um, I love the central theme of it, which is the fallacy of nationalism. Um, because the book is about these people who came together before the Second World War in Egypt. They were from different places, English, Hungarian, German, and they were all sort of working together. And then the war comes and then suddenly they be they became overnight enemies, not for anything they did, but because of the lines that were drawn by other people, by their governments, by the powerful men. Um, so I always loved that theme of it. And I love the book and I love the film. And I think they're com two completely different things. And what I love about it, I'll just give you one example, why the film really works while being completely different than the book. Like for instance, the character played by Kristen Scott Thomas, Catherine mm -hmm. Clifton is almost non-existent in the book. She is... Um, a dream or she, she is real and she's part of the story, but she doesn't appear as much. And it's all in the memory of the English patient who, of course, lost his memory. And uh, the Juliette Binoche character is trying to help him come together with these memories. So she's always a haze in the book. But in the film, those memories are realized and she becomes a full-fledged character. Um, and I just love that in that both the book and the movie hold on to this central theme while the movie completely creates um, other characters and takes the story in a different way while holding on to the same theme. So that's kind of why The English Patient has always been one of my favorite adaptations because I love the book and the movie and the differences between them. That totally makes sense. And I'm glad you pointed that out, that a adaptation can be successful while being very different from the original uh novel. So one of the things that I was thinking about was Christian Petzold's um, <laughs> 2008, I believe, film Jericho, which is based on The Postman Always Rings Twice, but it sort of transposes that story to modern day Germany and this woman whose husband kind of runs a a convenience store adjacent type business. He supplies snacks and things to different um, snack food shops and uh, she's kind of held in this marriage against her will. And she meets this veteran who his, or to who her husband employs to help drive him around and deliver all of the snacks. Um, and the two fall in love and eventually kind of plot this man's murder. That is the plot of Postman Always <laughs> Rings Twice. Um, but it's a completely different location. It's a completely different narrative, different characters, different context. And I like how Petzold is able to kind of bring those themes about being trapped in a marriage or feeling um, the impulse toward violence into a completely different time and place to kind of reveal how those themes are actually quite universal. And we see them again and again in history. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States in the 1930s uh, or in Germany today, you know, people still feel this way. I think that's really powerful um, uh, to think about with adaptation that you can kind of pull these very um, specific details, but kind of shape them to different contexts. And mm -hmm. um, as usual, he's very successful with that. Yes, Petzold is um, is a great filmmaker. And another great filmmaker whose adaptation I love is Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. And this is sort of like, I think... It, um, this is, of course, adapted from the Edith Wharton novel. And I think what really works about this adaptation is Scorsese and the screenwriter Jay Cox are not afraid of the book. In most adaptations, sometimes the screenwriter is afraid of the book. They don't want to, you know, be too faithful or actually have that many lines. But The Age of Innocence embraces the fact that it's based on the book. And there is a narrator, a literal narrator who's reading lines not all of them are from the book, but a lot of them are from the book. So I like that adaptation because the book is wonderful and the film is also great. But I love it for the fact that it embraces. It's an adaptation. It's never hiding from that fact. So that's another example of an adaptation that I like. 
Yeah, and that one I think similar to Girl with a Dragon a Tattoo, although in a completely different way, I think captures the opulence of that time period in a way that mm-hmm. when you're reading it, it's exactly how you imagine it looking. And he just abs- makes it one of the most beautiful films of all time. <laughs> yes. Um, all the descriptions in the book just come alive in the in the in the movie. It's it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting to think about adaptation being one of the most consistent things we've seen in the history of cinema. I mean, that's like the first thing that people did was kind of adapt these popular stories that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to think about how adapt adaptation has changed over time. And um, mm-hmm. one of the things. One of the best examples, I think, from classic cinema is Rebecca, the, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, if you haven't read the history of that, definitely seek it out because I think it's a really interesting example of you know how you take the very popular novel and put it through the studio system and all of that and all of that involves and eventually come out with uh, pretty much a masterpiece. Um, so it's very different than how it would work today, but um, nevertheless. They made it work, and I love that. Yes, um, Rebecca is a good um, example. There are other adaptations that I really love for movies. I love, like you know, Carol and Passing, two recent ones. But I don't want to get bogged down in a long conversation because the, the topic is too broad, and we could spend all day here talking about our favorite adaptations. But let, but why don't you let our listeners know um, a little bit about your conversation with Kristen Lopez and her book that. Um, we're about to listen to. Sure. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Kristen Lopez is the film editor at The Wrap. She's an excellent critic and writer. Um, She also hosts a podcast called Ticklish Business, where she talks about classic film. Um, And she actually recently collaborated with Turner Classic Movies to write, but have you read the book? Um, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films. So the film, so essentially there are short little vignettes, I guess, chapters that describe kind of the main themes of books and how they were adapted into films and maybe some behind the scenes information or things that changed, um, little facts here and there. And it's very uh, compact. It's very cute. And I think really good for anyone who is interested in this topic and just kind of wants to dive into some very popular films and learn a little bit more about um, why they were adapted and the books that they were adapted from. So um, it's a very interesting conversation. We talked a lot about why she selected the 52 um, films that are listed here. We talked about what makes a good film adaptation, what makes a bad film adaptation. Um, and then finally, we talked a little bit about the adaptation process. You know, she, as the editor of the rap, she's talked to so many screenwriters about their process over the years. Uh, and she was able to give a little bit of insight into that and uh, tell us a little bit more about what they're thinking about when they're actually making this happen. So it's a great conversation and I think you'll all enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Izzy and Kristen. All right, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm always happy to get to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Me too. Um, Well, first things first, tell me about the origins of this book. What inspired you to write it? How did it come about? Yeah, so I had a coworker at my last uh, job who had written two books for TCM. And I just kind of asked him one day, like, how do you get in on that? Because I figured it had to be some sort of intense process where, you know, the fates come down from on high and ask you to write a book for them. And it really wasn't. Um, He was like, let me put you in touch with the person that runs their publishing arm, which I did, uh, the great John Malahai. And he asked what I was into. And we talked for a while about stuff that I'd always been interested in that I'd wanted to write, none of which was this. Um, and he said, well, g- you know, give me a couple weeks, you know, you might hear back from us. And I got a call and they at TCM said, well, we have a bunch of ideas that we've already greenlit, but we need a writer for them. And we noticed that you have a master's degree in English. Do you read a lot? Which I thought was hilarious because as an English major, yes, you do read a lot. It's kind of comes with the territory. Um, And they eventually started describing the idea they had for this book about adaptations. And I was even more excited because 
I am a person that is incredibly impatient. So if somebody I love is going to be in a movie, I can't wait the one or two years that it takes for this movie to come out. So I will go and buy the book and I will read it as quickly as possible so that I know what I'm getting into. Um, so when they said, you know, do you read a lot of you know books that are based on films or vice versa? I was like, of course, I've been doing this. Uh, so it really did seem like, you know, kind of the perfect union of idea and a, an idea they already had and something I was already interested in. Well, I imagine that this is a very different challenge writing this kind of book than you, maybe what you do on a day to day basis at the wrap um, because you have to compare novels and the film. So were there any particular challenges that you felt um were particularly challenging during this process when you're writing it? Writing a book in eight months is always a challenge. I don't advocate it. Um, but that was the the time period that I got to work with. So really, it did kind of throw me back into my master's class days of, you know, in order to get my master's, I had to take a big test and you have to read, you know, they give you this whole page worth of books that you're supposed to read all the way through. Um, so I, I was excited to realize that I could still read a ridiculous amount of books in a very short amount of time. Uh, the pandemic, quote unquote, helped because I wasn't really going out. Uh, so I had a lot of time. But I think the biggest challenge for me was just not going too long on minutia. You know, I, I did have to be able to kind of sum up things, tell a story, focus on specific things, as opposed to just being like, well, in this moment, this character is different. Um, you know, you can get really wrapped up and just kind of pointing out similarities and differences. And I did want to at least try to sum things up and say why these decisions were made, um, you know, in a way that doesn't take, you know, 3000 words just for one one section. Um, so it was really hard for me to get to narrow down kind of the the elements that I wanted to talk about. And the other thing that you just always get reminded about is, you know, in terms of what is it? Um, I'm trying to think of the words in terms of like, not just telling a story, but really being able to pinpoint something about a book that maybe works and tell the reader about something that they don't know. You know, you always have to write to your audience. So for me, it was really talking about what a book audience is going to be getting versus a film audience. And some people don't know the book. So maybe I had to explain more plot summary. Maybe I had to explain more movie summary. So it's a very different process of like, what does my reader already know coming into this? Do you, after writing this book, has your opinion changed about what makes an adaptation successful? Like what is a good adaptation or a bad adaptation to you? I think it, it has changed things because you can have an adaptation like No Country for Old Men, which the Coen brothers pretty much lifted verbatim from the book, you know, right down to like ex whole exchanges, whole sequences. And the book is kind of like reading a screenplay, but the tone of the book is vastly different than the tone of the film. It's a bit more comical in the film. There's some dark comedy that runs through that. Whereas the film or the book is very angry. It's very politicized. Um, and I think that what makes a good adaptation is there's a line that W.S. Van Dyke, who directed the Thin Man movies, said, which is use the book as a guy, uh, foundation, not a guide. And I think that the best adaptations are ones that really do use the, the text as a place to start and realizing what an audience loves about what a book audience loves about a book and translating that without having to be precious about like, we need all of these characters and we need all of these scenes. You still need to have the, the bits that I think people automatically assume should be in there. You know, I, I think the way I looked at it was, is does a film adaptation include the parts that you would sum up to a, a reader, you know, if you had to describe the book, does it include those bits that you would expect to be there? Um, and I think a good adaptation is one where you can read the book and feel like you haven't lost anything because you've seen the movie and vice versa. Yeah, that's interesting because I think about, uh, for example, I think the first film version of Watchmen kind of was criticized for having been so similar that it almost... Uh, just didn't work for some reason. Like just translating the medium didn't quite capture the magic in the way that 
the graphic novel did. But are there, so are there adaptations that um, you think do that really successfully? Like what comes to your mind when you think of, oh, this is a fantastic adaptation of the novel or book? For me, the the go-to is always Jurassic Park. I think that you can read Michael Crichton's book and you can understand very quickly why Crichton was so massively adapted. Um, But you can read the book and it is so thrilling, so cinematic in its own way. that if you watch the movie and most people have already are watching the movie first before they're even reading the book, that doesn't always happen. But I don't know anybody that goes into Jurassic Park saying I read the book first. Um, You know, so it's a lot of people tend to go back and you don't really lose anything from watching the movie first. I think that if anything, it's fun to read the book and realize how Crichton kind of plays it like a mystery. You know, the first like couple of chapters are a bunch of people on this island. It's noticing these weird animal attacks and they're trying to figure out what it is. Uh, John Hammond is a villain in the book. Uh, Ian Malcolm's bald, which is hilarious. So there's no, <laughs> if anything, I think a lot of the changes that the film makes, you know, you go back and you read it and you, cause you always say like, you know, maybe if you watch Jurassic Park, you're like, but is John Hammond the villain? Like regardless of his good intentions, you know, is he a bad guy? Well, Crichton's got you covered. Cause he's pretty much saying like, yes, he is the bad guy. Here's what that would look like. So I think mm-hmm. I can enjoy either one of those versions and still feel like I'm getting something completely amazing. Are there any examples of films where they're so different from the novel, but to you, they actually are an improvement? Oh, gosh, that's so tough. I mean, I think Wuthering Heights is a good example. You know, Wuthering Heights, the 1939 version only comprises like the first 30 some odd chapters of the book. Um, you know, and, and I love the novel. I love, I'm a big Bronte person. I love it. But I do think that most people who complain about reading the book, the biggest complaint they have is that the whole second half of the book is the second generation, which becomes very convoluted in how characters are related. And the names are very similar. So there's two Cathy's. There's a, a Harriton and a Hindley. There's an Earnshaw that is not the Earnshaw of their last name. Uh, so a lot of people who complain about reading the book say, well, I can't keep these damn characters together. I don't know who's who. Um, and so I think watching the Bronte film is a great way to get into it because it does condense it into a pretty standard love story. Very tragic, very romantic, even though Bronte's book, I think, ends far darker Um, So it is very different in tone, very different in execution, but I love them both. Uh, And I think they they do really well telling their respective stories, even though they're very different. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Wuthering Heights, too, because I'm thinking about films that have been adapted several times. So it's like you have multiple Pride and Prejudices, you have multiple Wuthering Heights, Little Women. How did you decide, for example, with Little Women, like this is the version that I'm going to I'm going to include Greta Gerwig's version in the book and not um, Jillian Armstrong's or another version? Yeah. So part of what TCM and I came up with, you know, they wanted diversity in directors and authors, in genres, in eras. And so when I was putting stuff together, I said, well, what would give me the most to write about and where am I lacking? And I knew that as because the first the first um long list that I gave them had a lot of classic stuff. Like I think I pretty much stopped in like 1995. Um, I stopped at Jurassic Park. I was like, there's been no adaptations worthy since. Um, And they were like, no, you need to include modern stuff. Um, So I, I included Greta Gerwig's just because it's really the first book to or the first adaptation of Little Women to really kind of interrogate the nature of, of the book structure um, and, and to really look at it and boldly kind of say, I'm a, uh, this is a feminist text. This is a feminist film. Um, you know, the, the Gillian Armstrong version, I love it. It's my version of little women, but a lot of complaints that I hear from more like Gen Z viewers of it is how girl power it feels, um, you know, which, which they can't get over the nineties ness of it. Um, and I think the Greta Gerwig's version also is one of the few to interrogate how, white privilege the history of the book is um you know the the book was really written uh in the the wake of the revolution or civil war and each version of little women the film has really prioritized how 
we vaunt kind of white femininity and how do we discuss slavery? Um, so each version I always find very interesting in terms of how, uh, you know, in the 94 version, they have a moment, I think, where Meg talks about like children working in silk mills and they have like a one line about like, we didn't own slaves. Um, whereas I think Gerwig's version by kind of critiquing the nature of memory and how we kind of commodify that for literature is almost attacking the marches in a in a very interesting way of saying like this is all Louisa May Alcott's conception of these characters and we have to really take them with a grain of salt we can still love them but we have to understand that there is this ear this air of um kind of lack of of authenticity to them mhm uh, but even still, like you're considering kind of the history of American cinema to to pull. I mean, how many how many fil- films are in here? Like over 50, forty, at least fifty two. Um, so how do you kind of narrow that down? Does the popularity of the novel affect um, whether or not you pick it? Like for example, The Thin Man, I think of as a very popular film, not so much a popular novel anymore. So how do you kind of balance? what an audience might have seen or read when you're deciding to narrow it down to just 52 entries. Yeah. So I had a lot of kind of criteria that I came up with, you know, I, they originally said, well, we want between 40 and 75. And I gave them a list that had, you know, again, I stopped in 95. They were like, no, you need more contemporary stuff. Um, And so I, I kind of had to give myself some parameters, which was, since I knew I had a truncated writing time, I had to be able to pick stuff that either I knew very, very well um, or that I had wanted to read. Um, I had to pick stuff that I knew were sh- were short. Uh, so I think Valley of the Dolls and The Shining were the longest books that I included. So like, no, Anna Karenina made this list, unfortunately, because I was like, I cannot spend all that time oh, no. <laughs> reading yeah. Russian literature and translating all those vowels. Uh, it's just not going to happen as much. Yeah, as I speaking have track of speaking of losing track of characters, that's that's exactly. a big one for me. Um, as much as I have opinions about that that novel and those adaptations, um, I knew I was not going to include them, um, and I couldn't. I didn't include any novellas, which ended up kind of being a cheat because passing is on here. Um, and I didn't, I had another, like a, a bunch of other things. Um, so I tended to go with stuff that I knew people had to have heard of the film, at least. Um, you know, so Hunger Games, I knew uh, TCM's one requirement was they wanted Dune, because at the time that we were writing, the time that this was hoped to come out, Dune was their big film. Um, so it was a, really a blend of like what audiences would have heard of, um, what maybe they didn't know was a book. Uh, and stuff that I knew there was enough distinction that I could at least write something interesting for each of them. And the, the big caveat, one of the com- complaints I've gotten from people is I didn't include books I don't like. And that's par- partly because, you know, the book is called But Have You Read the Book? I want people to read the book. I didn't necessarily want to include books where the person's going to read it and be like, this book is trash. Why would this person have told me to read it? Because it's garbage. Um, so I didn't include I include well, I had to include one book that I didn't like, um, just because it was the last book and I didn't have a choice. Um, but most and of we the won't book, we won't ask you which one that is. Ernest <laughs> Hemingway's to have and have not. Uh, oh, there we go. One chapter of the book where I'm pretty much explaining the book is not good. Uh, it, it's fairly obvious that I don't like it. Um, but yeah, so those were those were kind of the criteria, and eventually, you know, I, I still kick myself though at the stuff that I didn't include, such as. Uh, Wizard of Oz was the big one that I'm still kind of like shocked I forgot to include on here. Um, I didn't include Gone with the Wind just because, again, long, um, you know, and uh, I had a I wish I had included more of the foreign adaptations, kind of like, you know, your girl with the dragon tattoo and let the right one in those things I just didn't think about. Um, so those were kind of the big the big heavy hitters. And a lot of things, a lot of choices boiled down to access too. You know, I had to make sure that the book was something that people could find. There were a couple movies I had on here that the books are maybe out of print or incredibly hard to find uh, that unfortunately just didn't make it. Yeah, that's tough. It also sucks, too, with a lot of these older books, because spending a lot of time with classic cinema as I do, I feel like the only versions that are available are like on archive.org and you kind of have to rent them by the hour and flip through PDFs, basically. And it's just awful. 
Yeah, so. I mean, like stuff like Vera Kaspari's work is very limited in what's been published. She she did Laura. Um, you know, unless you're kind of like Dashiell Hammett or you know uh, Philip Marlowe or you know, any of those those character or act direct bleh, authors, um, you know, you're not going to find all of their stuff in a readily accessible place. Like a lot of noir films are all based on books, especially from the 1940s, and it's hard to find those authors because they're maybe out of print or very small, like pulp publishing houses. Um, it's very tough. Does this kind of change how you think about classic cinema as well? Because so often I think of, you know, things like Sunset Boulevard, for example, or things that uh, Double Indemnity, these films that are so heralded for their writing. And to a certain extent, you kind of give that credit to the screenwriter alone. But I always wonder how much, because I haven't read those books, how much do we actually owe to the authors of those novels? I think a lot of noir stuff we do, we do need to cite you know someone like james m kane who did double indemnity mildred pierce and postman always rings twice i mean those books were heavily heavily altered for the film versions because they're very pre-code they're highly sexual you know you do have to do your fair amount of changing um but those characters wouldn't exist at all if you didn't have the source material same with nick and nora charles you know dash Hammett. Uh, tried so hard to make a sequel to the book and he couldn't do it and hated what they did with Nick and Nora. But at the same time, you have to really appreciate the screenwriters for making those characters as immortal as they are because there's only one book. So it it really is a, a give and take. I think what I came to appreciate in looking at adaptation just in general is how how efficient the classic film studio era adaptation process was. They had people that would just all day, just read the popular books, read galleys and present a one page or whatever to the studio head to say whether a book was filmable and you could get an adaptation of a popular book within six months to a year. Nowadays with how much, uh, you know, everything has to come together. You have to get a screenwriter, you get a director, you get actors. It takes so long to adapt a popular book that popularity is so fleeting nowadays that you look at an adaptation, you're like, that book was popular five years ago. Why do I care about it now? It, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so I, I do appreciate how, how quickly you could capitalize on the popularity of something. And I think too, in a lot of this is, just me being old man that yells at cloud talking about like the amount of content and social media, but you could get mass popularity for something built into a book because a lot of more people were reading. Um, You know, I, somebody asked me what was the last big adaptation where everybody knew about the book, whether you knew you would read it or not. And I said, the hunger games, Harry Potter, the YA boom of the 2000s and the 2010s is probably the last time anybody, regardless of whether they had read the book, actually knew what it was. Um, You don't get that nowadays because there are so many books and everybody is so fragmented in their own little social media bubbles that it's really hard for a book to to blanket and saturate the atmosphere in the same way that it did maybe in the 1950s or even the 1960s. Have you spoken to screenwriters about their process, um, if they've adapted books before and and what they kind of see the challenges to be like within the current studio system as it exists? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a lot. I mean, just the process of my my day job, you know, I recently talked to um, Richard LeGravenese, who did Beautiful Creatures and Bridges of Madison County, and I asked him that question, you know, how do you adapt? What's your process for adapting a book? And, you know, he said that it's, it's difficult because you have to please two audiences simultaneously. You have to please the audience that loved the book and you have to please an audience that has never heard of the book and just want to go see a good movie. And sometimes those two groups do not blend, you know, and he talked about when he adapted beautiful creatures, he got a lot of criticism from people who read the book because they felt that he had changed too much of it. But uh, people that watch the movie really like the movie because of how of the changes that he had made. So he says, how do you determine if it's a success or not? Financially, it didn't make any money. So, you know, from the studio side, it didn't it, it wasn't a success. But if audience, pe- you know, members still come up to him and say that they like it, 
has he done a successful adaptation? So the jury really is still out. Um, you know, I think any screenwriter will tell you that just because you have a book doesn't mean that your job is is laid out for you, that it's easy because you have to translate something that might be completely ridiculous on the page and make it in a way that an audience in a film is not going to immediately say that is so stupid. Why are you adapting this? And not only that, but I feel like a lot of screenwriters are now asked to turn, you know, a 300 page novel into a mini series. Yeah. So something like Sharp Objects, which is very short, becomes, you know, a multi episode hours long story that in, you have to essentially write an entirely new property. Yeah, the mini series boom with adaptations is. I get it, but I don't really endorse it because I think that some movies or some books just yield themselves to like one and done. You know, if anything, I'm all for like turning a series of books into a series of TV shows, you know, where you have maybe five or six books, kind of the Game of Thrones style where each season is a book. I think that tends to work out better than, you know, taking a, you know, 500 page novel and trying to turn that into 10 episodes of television. Absolutely. The only book that I've ever really been convinced would work as a miniseries and which I think they're actually doing now is East of Eden. Um, because it is told in such a like a literal chapter way that kind of lends itself to a different seasonal model. Um, so I'm interested in that, especially since the the film version only really covers half of the book. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm kind of surprised yeah. that we haven't done like an everything old is new again with like stuff like I mean, PBS does a lot, has done a lot of the Brontes and the Austin things, um, you know, so I, I'm kind of surprised that we don't have more of those just popping up where it's like these, these uh, extended versions of, you know, Wuthering Heights or something, but give them time. Sure, that'll happen. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, what do you, this also brings up an, another thing that I think about a lot, which is something you sort of hinted at earlier, which is oftentimes when films were adapted, they had to be changed so much to fit the moral codes of, of that time period, whether it's, you know, the 1930s or 60s even. But then there are things like, for example, Breakfast at Tiffany's that were kind of successful movies in their own right, but are also, I think, maybe the books are kind of better and give you something different than the film ultimately did. Um. But then there's also, I think, a fair sentiment of feeling like protective of those films and what they offered um, as like a filmic property in their own right. So how do you feel about kind of revisiting the original novels and uh, making adaptations that maybe <laughs> are truer to those novels, but kind of compete with these older, more classic films? I mean, it's, it's tough. You know, I think if you look at something like, like Jaws is a great example. Most people don't realize that Jaws is based on a book. And then they go back and they read the book. The movie is so ubiquitous. And it's so perfect that people get mad that the book is not that. Uh, you know, and a lot of people have told me, asked me why I included Jaws. Oh, the book is trash. And I'm like, yeah, is it trash, though? Because you just think that the the, you know, no disrespect to Steven Spielberg, the movie's great. But is it bad because you just want it to be the movie um which I have those two you know in, in certain instances where I, I wish one was more like the other you know I think some of these books really do lend themselves to having discussions about why certain things get cut you know even in the 1960s as the studio system is crumbling you know you had massive changes to something like Psycho um and Psycho is is a great example we've had two adaptations one of which is just a shot for shot remake of the first version and neither one is the book. Um, you know, they, they did a TV series, but again, very much not the book. Um, and it's a lot like Stephen King, you know, like Carrie's another great example. So many different versions of Carrie and none of them is truly the book um, just because of how Hollywoodized we've turned, you know, the concepts. Um, so, so for me, you know, I think I tend to be precious about, some of the books that I wish, you know, uh, had been adapted a bit more faithfully. Uh, I, I definitely will get in my feelings about certain books where I'm just like, it's great. The movie's great. I love the movie, but it is not the book. Uh, you know, so so I tend to compartmentalize. 
Same, same, same. But I guess what do you, what's your reaction when someone tells you how they think about a book or a film and they're like, well, the book is better? Like, is that kind of a tired thing to you? Or how do you respond when people say that? I feel like there's two kind of schools of thought when people say that, which is like, there's this moral superiority to it, where they're like, well, I read the book. So therefore, I'm cooler. Uh, because I started I didn't watch the movie or I think the, the it's kind of like the vinyl argument. You know, it's like stuff just sounds better on vinyl. Um, does it though sometimes? Um, you know, and then the other side is like the the concept of wanting to feel like you have to choose, you know, like you can't like both things at the same time. And I think that that is ridiculous. Um, you know, ultimately, like I wrote the book because I want people to read, uh, you know, some some great literature. Um, and I don't think you have to choose. I think that if anything, reading these books will help you see how people adapt things, you know, why certain choices are made. Um, I think it's always great to look at why some of the stereotyping and the issues that we have with Hollywood in regards to diversity tend to pop up, you know, because certain books maybe um, are a bit more whitewashed and you'll get some more diversity in the film. You know, why did they, the screenwriter make that choice instead of the author or vice versa? So I think that if anything, people who tell me that I just kind of, am like, what is the point of that though? <laughs> like, why are you telling me this? Because ultimately I think we love pop culture and pop culture is also literary. Uh, and I think that we can we can all love the all the things. That's such a that's such a nice sentiment. Much nicer <laughs> than I usually am. <laughs> um, so one thing I'm actually curious about, you mentioned this at the beginning of the interview, but you said that you approached TCM initially with some other ideas. And I'm curious, like, can we, are we going to see any new books from you? Or what are some things that you've been dying to write about? I would love to write more, barring I can get more time. Because again, writing a book in eight months is not my ideal. Um, you know, I love, I, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx anything too much, you know, but I, I mean, I, I love writing about disability in movies. I think that's a very under discussed topic. Um, you know, I love, I love just some of the weird pop culture stuff. I always tell people like this, I can put out into the ether. I always say if somebody wants to let me write a book about the Olsen twins in their movie career, just the movie career and like people how would they eat got that up. uh by, by, you know, sexism in this industry, I would love to do that. Um, so I, I mean, anytime I would love to do, you know, I've, I've kind of got a bunch of ideas for like, but have you type of things, you know, whether that's about more books where it's just me kind of talking about the weird books that nobody cares about but me, but I have really strong opinions on, or remakes. Um, I watch a lot of remakes uh, versus the original. So I have a lot of ideas. Um, I just need somebody to give me the money to do those ideas. So yes, I mean, I would love to, to write more uh, more things. A uh, lot of ideas percolating. Uh, if anything, I, I think the biggest thing I learned from doing this, though, is how kind of spoiled you get working with, with somebody like TCM. You know, uh, trying to pitch an, another book outside of this without kind of any like, su you know, support and kind of just going into different, different publishing arms and being like, hey, I wrote this book. I want to write a second one. It's it's a lot harder. Uh, people have said, you know, oh, well, how how can I use your example and get into the book publishing industry? I'm like, please don't, because getting commissioned to write a book is vastly different than actually going out and pitching a book. Um, so if anything, it's this was a great first example. And now I'm just kind of like, I miss, I miss this. Why did I have to get kicked out of the nest and try to sell something like on my own? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, first of all, yeah. People would eat up that Olsen book. We have to get you any, if anyone's listening um, and has some connections, you know who to hit up with yeah. that. Um, yeah. Don't, and I would love I like a volume two specifically, but if anybody would love me to, I mean, I'd be <laughs> for that. Uh, I just have a lot of Olsen based opinions. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we need like a volume two that's like deep cut adaptations, you know. Um, but I, I also have many deep cuts, uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also want to talk about the design of the book. I mean, it's just so it's a beautiful cover. It's very compact. It's like it seems like a perfect gift to give to people um, who are interested in these topics. Were you involved in the design of the cover or uh, how it how it's presented and all of that 
we I we knew we were doing illustrations because that tends to be more cost effective than rent uh, stills, um, which you have to pay for. Um, so we had an, I didn't get to pick the designer. You know, they sent me some some pictures of what the designs were going to look like, which I loved. Um, the biggest thing I got to choose with regards to the cover, uh, you know, placement of characters. They had a couple ideas that they had sent me and color. So there was a cream, which is what we have. Uh, out and then there was a blue and I felt very much like Sleeping Beauty uh, where I was team cream and TCM was team blue and we had to kind of uh, come together and decide and clearly I won uh, so team cream team cream took exactly. the day it, 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 <laughs> works. it just works no absolutely no it's a beautiful cover I'm so I'm glad you won I'm glad you won yes. um, <laughs> But last thing, and I'll let you go. You're a very, very busy person. So um, one thing that we like to do on this podcast is turn it over to Betty Davis. What a dump. So I'm curious if you had to dump any film adaptation or book adaptation uh, from existence, you have to erase the memory that it ever even happened. What are you picking? Oh. Gosh, it's tough because at least the movies tend to be good sometimes. Um, oh, God, that's so hard. Like, there are a couple of things where I was like, oh, I would tell you right now that book is, the movie's not good. But then I'm like, but I love elements of the movie, so I have to keep it. Okay, I'm just going to throw one out here and somebody's going to yell at me, but I'm going to say to bring it on back to Tolstoy. Uh, we're going to talk about the the Vivian Lee version of Anna Karenina. Vivian's fine. She's beautiful. She's great. But that movie is just a very, very gilded peacock of a film uh, that has no soul to it. It is very dull. Actually, the 30s version isn't great either. Um, So yeah, I mean, just your studio era versions of AK are not great. Um, They're just fairly soulless in, in ways that I just am like, I feel like reading the book might be better than watching either of these. Yeah, they did Greta Garbo pretty dirty on that, huh? I mean, yeah. It's not her worst film, but I will say it's it's not top five for me. (laughs) A lot of people have asked me to do my ultimate Anna Karenina casting because I could cherry pick elements from all of the versions. Um, And I mean, yeah, I, I think... Greta probably has the better side characters and the slightly better story. She is the weakest AK. Uh, you know, whereas Vivian is my favorite Anna Karenina, and then the rest of the cast is just like bleh. Yeah. Oh, it's tough. It's tough. What did you think of the new the latest one? The is the last one the Kira Knightley one? Kira Knightley or, one, yeah. yeah. There's a 97 one that I keep saying I'm going to watch that I, I think is the last one before I finally just hang up my Russian uh, hat uh, and say I'm done watching versions of a movie that I've never read the book. Um, but here <laughs> nightly one, I am biased because uh, it's, it's got my future husband in it. Um, and he is the best of the Vronskys in terms of like giving out like fuck boy vibes and just being the character that you would expect that character to be. Um, and I think that it's a worthy version uh i think that joe wright like trying to make it theatrical with like the the proscenium arch and the weird dance movements um is is a bit tricky i've seen it several times since then and i i grow a bit more into it every time i see it um but i still have big problems with it um mostly like like I get Jude Law is supposed to be like the other dude in the... The problem is, is that the Joe Wright version tries to build on the Vivian version. Um, so a lot of the same character traits, a lot of the same costuming, um, which is just like, why would you take that version as your version? But like, okay, I mean, you give me Aaron Taylor Johnson looking like a Caravaggio painting. I'll be fine with that. Sure, um, sure. Exactly. So again, maybe one day I'll actually read the book um and see see if the book actually does anything for me uh but but yeah uh it's it's definitely a series i have like a lot of opinions on for having never read the novel maybe one day i'll get to the 97 version and have have opinions on that one there we go we know it's what's next on your watch list then <laughs> the other thing i throw out is lolita too i think that like uh, the- wait which one 
So for me, I tend to say like I would love to throw the book out just so that we never get versions. So we don't have to talk about it. (laughs) We don't have to talk about it. I am the weirdo that came to the Lolita like I don't want to say fandom because that's gross, Um, but like world uh, through the '97 one. The Jeremy Irons one just left me with a lot of feelings that are disturbing that I have not reconciled with as a grown adult. Um, Right? Can I say that I? picked up that novel it was in a free book pile at my um, (laughs) college and I started reading it because I was like oh Nabokov's like he's he's important I got it whatever this book is I'll read it and I had no idea what it was about and so that was a shocking revelation (laughs) as I was just continued to make my way through this book and was like wait a minute (laughs) and and that's a great example of neither adaptation is the book you know, and I think that if we had adapted the book, maybe a lot of the BS that's associated with the Lolita world would dissipate because Nabokov makes a lot of really like humorous asides about how ridiculous he thinks Humbert is as a character. Um, you know, like, and Lolita is not conventionally attractive, much like Carrie in, in the different versions of Carrie, you know. Lolita is described as like kind of chubby and she's got you know she's like you know 12 and she's going through puberty so she's like gross she's like constantly like smearing stuff on her face and it's not attractive and the point of reading the book is that you're like how does this grown man because I mean the answer is he's a pervert um but how does he find anything redeeming in this care in this child who is so described just so negatively and so disgustingly. Um, and Hollywood took that as, well, let's just make her hot, uh, which is part of As the they problem. do with every do. book. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, though, I, I sat down with a friend, because I showed this movie to friends, um, and I made them watch the 97 version of Lolita. And we, we both, at the end of it, my friend was like, I don't understand why anybody would find this girl to be interesting. He's all, all she does is scream and complain. He's all, I'd have thrown her out of the car in 10 minutes and just moved on with my life. Oh, like, God. Yes, but you're not a pervert. So like, <laughs> yeah, okay? Oh, so you're normal. Okay, exactly. cool. I was like, yeah. this is what a normal person does. So um, I think that, yeah, if, if Hollywood maybe was less interested in sexualizing a book that is actually kind of taking the piss about pedophilia. Um, it would be far more interesting. But ultimately, I think, like, we're just going to have to salt the earth. So, yeah, if we could get rid of the book, I think we'd probably be fine. What a, what a note to end on. <laughs> Hollywood's gross relationship with young girls. <laughs> Ugh, well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they buy the book? Yeah, you can buy the book wherever you get books. If you buy it through LarryEdmonds.com, uh, I will sign your book. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of events here in LA. If you are in the area, I'm going to be at Larry Edmonds on March 29th for my book launch. I'll be at the Hollywood Heritage Museum on April 12th for uh, the TCM Classic Film Festival pre-party. Uh, you can find my writing over at The Wrap. I'm on Twitter at Journeys underscore film and Instagram at Kristen Lopez 88. And I do a podcast called Ticklish Business talking all about classic film, which Izzy has been on. Uh, our second, uh, Her second appearance will be on soon. Um, and yeah, you can find that wherever you get podcasts. And we have a, a Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will leave links for all of those things in the description of the episode. So check those out. You can find the podcast at I Am Picture Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on YouTube at Be Kind Rewind and Instagram, BK underscore Rewind, Twitter, BK Rewind. And you can find me at ME underscore says on Twitter and at Mortada underscore E on Instagram. And until next time, thank you for listening.